Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. There is this big space of ungoverned disorder where nothing is being done and we're just kind of holding up our hands and going, well, don't know what we could do. I'm Jason Pack. And I'm Alex Hall Hall. And we're the hosts of Disorder, a brand new podcast from Goalhanger, where we'll be connecting the dots using our own experiences as well as talking to people at the forefront of global affairs. All seeking to work out why are the world powers no longer coordinating as they once did? The trouble is the United States, but also some European societies, are so divided. How did we get here? The modern version of the culture war in which the fight that matters is not the real one. It's about winning certain kinds of arguments online. What can we do to fix it? How do you repair disorder? It's by becoming a community. Search Disorder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis and this week I talked to Raphael Baer and George Eaton about Sadiq Khan, London mayoral race and the problem of housing. Philip Morn and Michael Proncher discussed the real books of the year and I talked to Ian Stebman about whether you'd really want your genome sequenced. joined by Raphael Baer, our political editor, and George Eaton, editor of The Staggers, to talk about the week in politics. Uh, first up, George, let's talk about your interview with Sadiq Khan, which is happening in the shadow of a kind of decisions about the London mayoral race and who might run for it on Labour's point. So, so where is Sadiq Khan positioning himself? Well, he was appointed as shadow minister for London by Ed Miliband in January. And so now he has a licence to obviously focus and talk about the, the capital a lot. And that does put him in a good position to, to stand um, and he has the advantage that he can he can speak about these issues without being accused of, sort of promoting himself and what's interesting is there was a, although he almost certainly will be accused <laughs> of that but he can get away with it because yeah. he's got a good cover he's got a cover yeah. um, I mean, there was a progress event recently uh, it was effectively the first hustings so David Lammy Diane Abbott Adonis Tessa Jow all of whom have expressed interest in the role were there Sadiq was due to appear but pulled out and when I asked him about this he, he launched a, basically an attack on what he called a beauty parade and accused uh, his Labour colleagues of playing ego politics. Um, Which will endear him to no doubt to the rest of the field. <laughs> it's worth, I mean, it's worth pointing out what a plum gig this is potentially for a Labour candidate because no one denies that Boris is unusual uh, in in many ways, uh, but chiefly in that he's, he's, gets, he's managed to get Labour people to vote for him in the capital and that's partly uh, the force of his personality his charisma it's partly because by the end of ken livingston's time ken had effectively just irritated and annoyed enough people uh, on the labor side um that they felt they couldn't vote for him anymore for various reasons but the reality is the capital is late it's labor voting territory a lot of it and it should be possible 
for a half decent Labour candidate to if to be a shoe in the next time. It's also a plum job in the sense that you get quite a lot of power. You get a lot of you get executively you don't you get a lot of power over things like transport. Um, and Are you the, knocking transport? And, which is very important, <laughs> and well, it affects the, the quality of people's lives a lot. So you know, it's, it's you a double get, sword. No and the police. You get away with a lot as well. So we had the news this week that the Barclays are withdrawing their sponsorship from the Boris bikes. I think it's every journey that anyone's taken on one of those bikes has cost. I mean, we might as well have just bought everyone a travel card, essentially. Yes, and that's quite. I mean, there's a good good point now because that is genuinely very embarrassing for Boris because the way that deal was structured, the way it's unravelled, the fact that he was announcing effectively that Barclays were in it for a long haul not that long ago. Now, it's not entirely clear why, on what basis, what confidence he said that, but my understanding from speaking to people in the in City Hall is that they are have been freaking out about this, were desperate for it not to come up, were begging Barclays to stay on board, and the whole thing's unravelled. Now, will that damage Boris... Not much does seem to damage Boris. The Dangleway didn't damage Boris. But I, I, I sense that Boris's share price is has, is going down a bit now. Actually, he's, he's he needs. You sense that his moment is passing, and you you're starting to get from him a sense of the urgency that if he's going to really establish himself as as a successor to David Cameron or whatever it is ambition he wants to fulfil. Uh, that time isn't on his side, actually. Which presumably, George, will be something that whoever takes the, whoever campaigns as the Labour candidate has to think about themselves. In a way, you're getting a big plum job. You know, you can sort of tart yourself about in front of large crowds a lot of the time, but you're also taking yourself into a sort of side adjunct where you don't get to be an MP anymore. Yes, and actually, one of the things that Sadiq said, and which most of the major sort of London players are saying now, is they want the mayor to be given more powers, more devolution to London. Um, so. One thing that former Labour Minister Kisiyasha has proposed is that London has its own minimum wage um, because to reflect the the higher cost of living there, they'd like London to be given um, more housing powers because they point out the London housing market is is quite unique compared to the rest of the country. And housing is one area that that Sadiq talks about. I mean, one advantage you have as Shadow Minister for London is you can roam quite far because all policy issues relate to London. And so on housing, he actually says... You know, we've got this target that Ed Miliband said of building 200,000 homes a year by 2020. Sounds ambitious, but actually, you know, if you speak to councils, they say that London needs 800,000 new homes in four years. And so this is sort of Sadiq almost challenging, um, you know, Ed Miliband's own own position. And the same on the mansion tax, right? Yeah. So the mansion tax, he was basically pushing back against some of the Labour figures who'd sort of quite conveniently started saying, oh, it's a tax on London, it's going to penalise the asset rich but cash poor. And that is part of, you know, what he sees as them positioning themselves to, you know, start to win over the evening standard, perhaps. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, you know, that's... Uh, You're going to get donors to your campaign as well. I mean, one of the interesting things about the timing of the Labour side of the race is that, in, in theory, I don't, don't think this is locked down yet, but Labour have said they want to have open primaries. But in order to get organised... Uh, to run in and win an open primary, you need to get your campaign machinery up and running probably realistically next summer or before, certainly before the general election, mm. which means that, that this will flush out people who want to run. Uh, they will then, they will then, not impossible, but slightly tricky question of, well, are you therefore suggesting that either you don't think Labour are going to win and therefore you're not going to be a minister in Labour government, or would you rather be Mayor of London 
or a cabinet minister in a Labour government. And and obviously you can say, well, I'd like either. But in, <laughs> I'd be in, delighted it, to serve it, in whatever way. Splitting the difference yeah. is never a good look in politics, and they, and they will have to navigate that quite carefully. And just to wrap up, um, Raph, I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about what's happened. There was an enormous amount of fallout from the autumn statement last week. There was perceived to be the Tories looked very happy for the first time in quite some time. Ed Balls looked extremely miserable. Mm. Um, has that all now... Kind of has that wave gone back down and 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 is everything back to normal again? Um, it, it, it depends which normal we're talking yeah, about because well. the cycle of normal seems to kind of go come round and round. Um, I think there is an extent to which before the autumn statements, uh, I mean the, the 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 political story as it's told by the lobby and the press gallery and, and the media. Um, you know, it is a prevailing wind and sometimes the wind changes and there was a sense before the autumn statement that Ed Miliband had disoriented the Tories, he'd got them on the run with his cost of living stuff. There is now a sense that actually that's kind of running out of steam and the whole purpose of the autumn statement was to reframe the argument a little bit in terms of who has the big picture economic understanding of what's gone on, who's winning the argument because George Osborne won the debate in the chamber on the day uh, and there was, there was no question about that. I mean, I was in the room and you just felt that the ball was in the back of Ed Balls' net and there was nothing he could do about it. That um, now the wind is blowing slightly at the Tories' back on this. Um, the numbers do very strongly support the Labour argument that this is a recovery for the few and that most people aren't going to feel it. What we won't know is whether that continues to be true into 2015 and you are starting to pick up a lot of anxiety on the Labour side um, that... Actually, a bit of recovery, wages pick up a little bit. It doesn't need much for people to accept that the Tories have, one way or another, a bit slower than you might have liked, got things back on track. Um, so, And that does slightly resemble the anxiety you had back in 2010, 2011 on the Labour side of people who saying, if we box ourselves in too hard in saying too far, too fast, it's going to work, it's going to fail, when you get growth, we're going to start to look a bit stupid. So people who are right to be anxious back then are anxious now and that is should be a cause for wider anxiety on the Labour side. And George I want to finish up by saying that I was shocked and horrified to see you being very supportive of George Osborne raising the retirement age. Yes I mean I just I think this is... No I think it's very funny because it's one of those things that is kind of clashingly obvious that you, that we can't, that an ageing population requires support but it's just the it's sort of seem to be political death to say anything about the idea that pensions might be this huge looming unsustainable Kind of force. It is, I mean, and this idea that the sort of triple lock is somehow some sort of uh, unchangeable part of the British constitution. Now, I do, I do accept the point that people make when they say you have to deal with health inequalities, though, and you also have to consider that it's it's one thing for sort of a, a journalist say to work until they're seventy, it's another thing for for someone who has a sort of more physical job to to do. And, when I was at the mail, we tried to get... You'll find journalism be very physical. But. <laughs> <laughs> no, when I was at the mail, we tried to. We were looking around for columnists to write how terrible to write on past 65. And then it became very apparent that actually they've got lots of people who write on past 65. Because if you're kind of knocking out 800 words on, you know, where have all the bees gone? That's something that you can continue to do. But yeah, you, a, a manual job is a very different yeah. proposition. Um, but is there anything else that you liked in the autumn statement, George? Yes, actually. I mean, uh, imposing capital gains tax on, on foreign buyers. I don't think there's a... I don't think there's anyone who's going to disagree with that at the moment. Um, I, they also did some quite smart stuff on housing, actually. So, for instance, they said, well, allow councils to sell more expensive uh, properties and to use that to, to build more affordable, <clears throat> more affordable new ones. A lot of this thinking has been influenced by Neil O'Brien, so the, the former director of policy exchange, who Osborne took on as his 
special advisor, and they've actually poached uh, another policy exchange figure, Alex Morton, who, who specialised in housing there, who's mm. now been taken on to advise uh, Cameron on the number 10 policy board. And so it's quite clear that the Tories, like everyone else, have recognised that housing is is rising dramatically in salience. And the bigger picture, this is a, this is a serious threat to Labour that I'm not sure yet that the Labour High Command fully understands, that the Tories... Um, and one of the charges against them is that they don't believe in anything um, and they're entirely self-serving and just playing a political game, which might well be true. But if they see their interests served by nicking things that Labour does that are popular, such as the cap on payday lenders uh, or moving into this space and housing, uh, starting to address the cost of living, they can do it and they will do it. And they're the government and Labour saying, well, it's too little too late, which is one of the weakest attacks possible in politics, in, in, in sort of political argument, doesn't help. And if the Tories go, can go into an election saying, well, we've we've heard what Labour have been bleating about when we're actually going to do something about it. Oh, and by the way, big picture, we're the ones you can trust to fix the public finances and have a long term economic strategy. And Labour, they're saying, but you still haven't solved fuel bills. It's not enough. Mm-hmm. And I think we'll see in the beginning of next year, Labour either rising to that challenge or going through another one of their very wobbly phases. Oh, on that note of jeopardy, we'll leave it. Thank you very much, George and Raff. It's that time of the year when every reader has to face their ignorance as the books of the year uh, lists come out in all the major newspapers and magazines. And we realise just how many books we've missed or not read in a given year. I am joined by Michael Prodger, current assistant editor at the New Statesman and former literary editor at the Sunday uh, Telegraph, to talk about the books of the books of the year. We've done we've done some maths here at the New Statesman, haven't we, Michael? Yeah, yep, crunched the numbers. We've crunched the numbers and we've got a list of everyone's choices we've got the telegraph guardian times tls we got them all and um which book has been chosen the most this year well perhaps unsurprisingly it's the first volume of charles moore's biography of, of margaret thatcher that is unsurprising um, yeah um, <laughs> i think if you'd put money on that you'd have uh, got your stake back and nothing more um in fact looking at looking at the top 15 there's it's a it's a year with very few surprises on books of the year which which tend to be slightly predictable uh, slightly predictable processes but Quite often you get you get uh, a strange a strange book or two that gets thrown up. This year, um, the top three are the ones that have have garnered all, all the praise so far. So that's Margaret Thatcher by Charles Moore, um, Hermione Lee's biography of Penelope Fitzgerald, which has been uh, lauded left, right, and centre, and Lucy Hughes Hallett's The Pike about uh, the Nuncio, which won the Samuel Johnson Prize. So it's three serious bits of non-fiction at the top there, um, which have which have uh, drawn the reverence and 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 actually. They, they rather demand it of people. Mm, I was pleased to see Hermione Lee's book in there. That's a quite a really recent uh, publication, so it's nice that people have, have taken to it. There was a fourth book which uh, was chosen the same number of times as um, the Hermione Lee and the Lucy Hughes Hallett, and that is The Sun by Philip Mayer. Have, have you read that one? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a Western. It's, it's Philip Mayer, his previous book was called American Rust, mm. and he is seen widely as the successor to Cormac McCarthy. And so the, many people are seen as yeah. the successor to Cormac McCarthy. He might be the one. Okay, he might okay. be the you know rather than the love child, he might be the bona fide acknowledged okay. uh, official son. And and that uh, I think that gives people the chance to uh, feel that they're not being unliterary in reading something that's a good Western saga. It is it is very well written. Um, it's very atmospheric. It's a real. 
Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Blood and Soil book, and, um, and people, people have liked that, and it seems a respectable choice. The thing about the thing about these books of the years choices, as we know, is that they operate in a parallel reading universe to uh, to what other people are buying. Um, well, they, they give people a chance to uh, to put in the uh, slightly quirky choice once in a while. That's true. Um, to talk about that parallel a little bit, I, I did a bit of googling this morning, and I have here. Obviously, the lists for the whole year of sales aren't available yet, but I have a list of um, Amazon's best-selling books of the year so far. Um, the, the top of which is a book called The Fast Diet by Michael Mosley. Um, no, as, no choices on the Books of the Year pages. Unfortunately not, no. Um, as you would expect, there are a fair few um, um, cookbooks on this list. There are a fair few children's books. But there is a little bit of crossover. Um, I noticed that Morrissey's autobiography has, has, um, has come in at the 18th most purchased book on Amazon. And that's also on our list. So, I mean, there is, uh, there is a little bit of crossover. There, yeah, there's, in fact, when you say little, in, in fact, it is, in fact, quite minuscule. <laughs> the, the only two books that seem, seem to relate uh, in any way across these reading universes are Alex Ferguson's autobiography. And, and Morrissey's autobiography, um, both chosen. Well, the the the, uh, the Alex Ferguson was chosen three times across the uh, the, the broad shed, uh, broad spread of papers, and Morrissey twice. So once one wonders whether it's people just showing their credentials as a, a man of the people in Alex Ferguson's case, or um, or some somehow being slightly down with the kids with Morrissey. Um, there, there are a few slightly controversial books on here, insofar as. Um, Stoner, this this sort of miraculous kind of rediscovery of John Williams this year. Um, this book was first published, I think, in 1957, um, but it became Waterstone's book of the year and is uh, is sort of in joint third place on our list here. The American fiction seems to have had a pretty brilliant year. It does much better than much better than British fiction. I mean, Stoner's a one-off. I think people they love the idea of these these rediscovered people. In fact, somebody else on the list is not quite rediscovered, but James Salter. Mm. Who is the, the the last of that great generation of uh, of big American novelists? This happened to him a few years ago, and this year, with all that is, um, his his uh, li- it's likely to be his last novel because he's in his very late eighties. Mm-hmm. He's got that reverence, and Stoner um, and John Williams seems to have the, the same sort of thing is happening there. Um, and because Stoner has been such a critical success, um, they will be the publishers are reissuing his previous works, and he does seem to have been someone. That we should have known about and, and didn't mm. and people have picked that up so in fact this is where i think these these lists can be occasionally quite useful in spreading the word on on, on some some unexpected novelist like that mm. um i don't want to put you on the spot but are there any obvious titles you feel are slighted by not being included in this maybe a personal favorite no actually actually no i think that the, these lists tend to be so comprehensive mm. um i know that when we when we did the numbers uh, there's it goes into ooh, probably a, more than 100 yeah. uh, and some have only been chosen once so there's such a spread there of, of of the years publishing that's been represented um what is slightly surprising perhaps is the lack of is the lack of humor people can go very po-faced about these lists and really looking down the top 15 
Um, there's really the only the only light book in there is this book called Love Nina by um, the former nanny to the uh, editor of the uh, London Review of Books, uh, and it's her sort of gossipy account, gossipy diary of the people that um, that uh, mingled at Mary Kay Wilmers's um, uh, North London house, Alan Bennett, uh, Jonathan Miller, and so on, and her her rather sharp sides about them. But otherwise, the rest the rest of the top the top fifteen, top twenty are dead serious books. I mean, I think if you were given them for a Christmas present, you'd think, well, that's very kind. Um, but uh, you might just pause a little bit before you dived in and started reading. Mm. And you wonder if the sort of owner, publisher of the London Review of Books, I mean, quite possibly a good proportion of the people who are going to be interested in that gossip are the people writing these lists. Right. So I wonder how that's going to translate into sales. Exactly. I mean, it'll have limited appeal in, in different parts of the country and outside that very tight-knit London metropolitan literary world. I mean, there's a book designed for them and it's perfect for them for to, to, so that they can um, sort of puncture their own pomposities once in a while. Um, but yes, for a wider wider audience, um, I'd rather doubt it. Okay, brilliant. Let's check back when we have the 2013 sales bestseller list in, in total and look at, see how this list shapes up then. But Thank you. any relevance. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. I'm joined by Ian Stedman, our science blogger, to talk this week about human genome testing. First of all, Ian, why are we talking about this? Yes, because uh, I, well, I spat in a tube and sent it to America this week. <laughs> right. Because uh, uh, there's a company called 23andMe, which um, has been getting a lot of sort of tech hype recently because it's kind of trying to do with human genomes, what Google's done with digital data, sort of gather as much as possible um, and sort of sequence it and sell it to companies and stuff and do kind of medical testing and things. But it's in the news because, um, well, to go back to the beginning, it was founded by the now former wife of Sergey Brin, who founded Google. It has a lot of startup capital. And for many years, it's been advertising these $99 tests online where they send you a tube, you spit in it. They do this thing called SMP genotyping, which is... Uh, 0.1% of the human genome, but it tells you quite interesting stuff about your ancestry. Sort of um, whether you're... I, I, I have a friend who found out that she's 60% Han Chinese, despite, as far as she's aware, not having any sort of Chinese uh, relatives that ever. Um, kind of goes deep in your genome and tells you, tells you how what percentage you are Neanderthal, which is quite interesting. Um, but it also has health Because Neanderthals and early modern humans did in fact interbreed, yes. the, which we'd only recently found out about, it's right? It's true, yeah. Um, and it will tell you if you're like 3% Neanderthal, which is quite nice. Um, What's the maximum percent Neanderthal you can be before? It's a good question. Really I'd say, I'd say probably less than 5%. Um, um, but, that's, but there's now, this has now run into a slight amount of trouble. Yeah, because they also offered health testing where they'd um, sort of tell you if you carried the genes that made you more susceptible to things like Alzheimer's or Parkinson's, which are quite serious things, and you think people would want to know that. Mm. And people have wanted to know that, so I've been uh, buying these tests and running them. And 23andMe has been offering health advice and interpreting the results themselves, which a lot of doctors have been annoyed with because um, in the healthcare industry it's quite common before doing this, these kind of tests to offer counselling to people. Yeah, I have a friend who's a genetic counsellor and it's a really tough... I mean, if yeah. you're talking to a couple who've got one children with a serious inherited... one child with a serious inherited disease, they're thinking about having another. That is a 
big yeah. decision to make about someone's life. What 23andMe does is they send you an email saying your results are ready and they have a nice little infographic on their site that tells you... Don't make any plans for next year. Yeah, it's 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 a little bit... Um, you know, they, they do say, you know, seek out medical advice to sort of like double check these results and stuff if it's something serious. But um, the Federal Drug Agent... Was it? Yeah, no, food, food and Drug Agency, yeah. the FDA in America, has been kind of working with them for a while to try and get them to sort of... Uh, What's the word? Go along with U.S. healthcare laws, basically, and make sure they're not offering a product that's sort of misleading people and their genetic susceptibility to things. And about six months ago, Twenty Three and Me, after many years of cooperating, just stopped replying to letters. Allegedly, um, this is what's come out, um, and it's it's very strange. They also at that time started advertising much more heavily the health side of the business, which was the controversial thing. So a couple of weeks ago. 23andMe got a letter from the FDA saying you have to stop selling your product now because you're just taking taking the Mickey, frankly. Um, and they have well, what they've done is they've still offering for sale. I bought one after this letter came out, and they stopped doing it. But they're not going to give you the results in anything other than the raw form now. Um, so you can get your own data and debug your own source code, as it were, but um, they're not going to interpret it for you until they sort this out. So my question is, how useful is this? For example, it's the BRCA gene that is the one that lets you know yeah. when you've got a much, much, much higher risk of breast cancer. So that can be very useful information. Yeah. People have preventative mastectomies for that. But knowing that you have a slightly increased risk of Alzheimer's, what can what what can you do with that information? Well, the the best thing to do would be to go to a, a, a proper doctor and get you know, more in depth tests. I mean, these are basic tests. As I say, it's it's spitting in a tube. Mm-hmm. Um, blood tests and swabs would do much more detailed stuff. Um, but I mean, on a more fundamental level, I don't know if you're familiar with the film Gattaca. Yeah, fine <laughs> yes, film. I am. But this idea about the kind of so Jude Law's character and that's got this perfect genome, and he ought to be you know the absolute golden boy. But I think he was dived into a swimming pool and broke his back or something like that. Yeah. Um, ha- the same thing kind of applies with this, knowing that you have a slightly increased risk of something maybe happening in thirty years' time. Uh, obviously, any doctor in the world would say, "Have you thought about eating less saturated fats, yeah. stopping smoking, moderating your drinking?" It, is there actually is this a product that that people need or will it have a will it do you think it there will encourage so, people to take care of their health better yeah, yes i think it will i mean there are several um factors at play here there's um i mean you look at the popularity of things like the program who do you think you are and ancestry and stuff and it plays into that quite well like the the sort of the fun of knowing out that your sort of 20 percent of you came from turkey all these centuries ago is quite fun um but the incentive uh healthcare wise for 23 and me is as I said, I compared it to Google, and and you think of uh, healthcare studies where universities and and pharmaceutical companies spend a lot of time getting together enough people to partake in st- sample studies, um, and that could be quite difficult, quite costly, and time consuming. Twenty three andMe is going to be developing. Its aim is to gather twenty five million. Mm-hmm. It has four hundred thousand people so far have sent their data to it. They want twenty five million because when you get to twenty five million, you have a massive data set that you can subject all kinds of analytical tools to and you can look for patterns in it that you would never be able to find with a normal study um there was quite a prominent thing where they managed to identify some gene that's associated with parkinson's um the uh, sergi brin's mother i think Mm. i'm not sure about that but someone related to the founder of the company had parkinson's and that was kind of something they pushed quite heavily and that that's often uh, cited as something that would never have been able to find out without this kind of sort of low budget 
It's quite interesting, isn't it? Because there's a brilliant New Yorker story about Iceland. And um, Iceland is a kind of haven for people who want to study genetics because it's a small population that historically hasn't, you know, intermarried, interbred, whatever you want to call it, with other countries very much. So it is it is genetically a kind of very tight sample. But there are big concerns over people about whether or not they want all that information to be out there. You presumably signed away your information when you spat in your tube. Uh, yes, they keep it for up to two years, I think. And, and it's weird because a lot, a, a large part of me is very sceptical of companies like Google for wanting to hoover up so much digital information. Yeah. But then I'm quite happily... I'd signed over the rights to my genetic data to a company trying to do a similar thing. In and, two and years' time, when the Ian clone arrives yeah, at the it, office bent on revenge, then you're going to be... Ruining that day. It is. It's weird. It's you know, for ninety nine dollars, it's it's that's something like sixty quid. To find out this kind of information is just so tantalising. I didn't care about all the rational reasons I know for not wanting to do it, and I think that's why this is such an important growing field. I mean, twenty three me is is not the only company that offers this. It's just the most prominent, and it won't be. There'll be more that come along. Um, and the idea of testing yourself at home for certain genetic attributes is going to become quite common. Um, and it's it's going to be interesting to see how regulators deal with making sure people aren't misled by that. Yeah, it is. And I think that is a question about whether or not how much people are ready. I mean, I could imagine, I don't know quite, for example, the specifics, but if you had, say, androgen sensitivity syndrome, which means that you're genetically XY, but you can look, uh, appear entirely everything, female, um, then this could be the way that you find out about oh, yeah. that. And I think that there will be a couple of it will only need a couple of stories about that, about people who've had some enormous life-changing revelation with absolutely no support mm. that will cast that into quite a lot of jeopardy. Absolutely. But, um, well, I, I wish you luck with your results. <laughs> I'll let you know what happens. I hope that it comes back that you're some kind of you know, super soldier of the future. Um, and, yeah, please keep us updated. Thank you, Ian. Thanks. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast presented by me, Helen Lewis, and produced by Philip Morn and Caroline Crampton. You can find us every week on iTunes and at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. Our theme tune is Devon with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. See you next week. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.